0: Lord Acton once said, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is Save versus Rant. Welcome to Save versus Rant. I'm John. I'm Jeremy, and this topic that we're going into is power gaming.
1: Power gaming, something that all of us can relate to, to some degree or another. First, a quick introduction regarding who we are. I'm John, and this is Jeremy, and together we have a combined 40 years of gaming experience and about 30 years of role-playing experience, specifically starting with Dungeons & Dragons. My first edition was the Advanced Revised Edition.
0: I was somewhere in second edition. They just told me, roll this die, play the character. Lots of thacko. You and I, uh, our first meeting, the first time that we even met each other whatsoever first time that we really became friends was a very loud and animated discussion and argument about what character was more powerful in 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons.
1: Yes, I believe it was specifically between the monk and fighter. I was arguing that the monk was broken because of things like his complete lack of need for weapons and his scaling with magic weapons pretty well.
0: I believe that I was arguing that the monk was the most underpowered class in uh, 3rd edition, and I'm fairly certain that most of my arguments... Arguments have been lost to time and possibly a lot of alcohol abuse on my part.
1: I remember everything perfectly. I believe my argument was that a monk with a sling and the uh, deflect arrows feet could run circles around a fighter quite literally. Of course, it's a very limited use case and it breaks down at higher levels. But for the first couple of levels, I think my point was pretty valid. That's not what we're getting into today. We will rant and a lot but not on that specific topic. Our topic today is power gaming.
0: Let's quickly define what power gaming is. All right. So power gaming is, at least as far as I can tell, just wanting to win a game as hard as you can. And as a big board game fan, power gaming is what I do in almost every single game that I play. Yeah, it's
1: the natural extension of a game that has rules. If you have rules, There are going to be certain strategies that are superior to certain other strategies. And using those strategies is effectively power gaming. What you're doing is playing the game to win and trying to make your efforts, trying to maximize your efforts.
0: The, the real issue with power gaming comes from role-playing, and that's what this episode is going to be about, power gaming in role-playing.
1: And to a lesser degree in things like war gaming and other games that do have a narrative element.
0: So I suppose that uh, we, we should define the different levels of power gaming. Basically, anyone who has tweaked their character to any extent whatsoever is power gaming at least a little. Yeah. Yeah. The, the real ones that we have to worry about are the, the min-maxers, which are people who maximize their most powerful attributes, minimize their least powerful attributes, oftentimes using dump stats and broken weapon combinations, class combinations, and the like to get the best result out of their character in a very specific situation.
1: And then there's munchkinning, which is typically defined as using the strict interpretation of the rules, even when it doesn't match the spirit of the rules or the narrative element of the rules.
0: Also, munchkinning can all can be defined as the people who completely ignore all role-playing aspects whatsoever for the maximum benefit that they can. This is where we get our third-level cleric, eighth-level monk, uh, fifth-level swashbuckler, raging barbarian types.
1: Or just single-class reaping maulers. I mean, there is that.
0: Well, that yeah, of course. So I suppose that we should start off by talking about the game that we've already referenced, Dungeons & Dragons.
1: Uh, one quick final note, um, I do want to mention that metagaming is a sort of power gaming. Metagaming is where you use things like out-of-character knowledge, where the player is aware of something, but the character would not be. And you do want to, you do want to succeed, so it seems like not acting on out-of-character knowledge is... A completely incorrect decision, but it can lead to some interesting narrative scenarios, and that's a lot of what role playing is about—is collaborative storytelling. But as long as it has a game aspect, there's always going to be that notion of winning, and to some degree, that's good. I mean, that's part
0: of the game. Mm-hmm. Well, the first person to really bring role playing into uh, games was uh, Dave Arneson, way back, uh, way back when. And he—he's oftentimes what we hold as the paragon of the role player. He won by his terms by finishing his particular story, and that was what? What game was that? Was that uh, uh, Bronstein? Um, I think it was—I think it was the original
1: Chainmail, maybe. Mm-hmm. I want—I want to say it was the original Chainmail. Um, that was some old-school Gary Gygax, Dave Arneson, uh collaboration there way back in the bad old days of role-playing.
0: But yeah, but you're you're right. Metagaming is the biggest, furthest out uh, extension of power gaming and it's oftentimes the one that's uh, the kibosh is put on as uh, quickly as possible. Let's move into Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, I think that we're going to be talking specifically about the 3.0 and its variants.
1: Yeah, uh, 2nd edition did have some power gaming. Most notably, the uh, fighter mage thief class that you could be if you were a full-blooded elf was frequently cited as being pretty broken in and of itself.
0: There was also, I do believe... uh, paladins who dual-wielded Holy Avengers, and they could be probably uh, one of the most powerful uh, damage-outputting melee-type characters you could make.
1: And on the Munchkin side of it, there was the dart build. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the dart build, it's been a long time since this one has come up. In D&D 2nd Edition, the number of attacks you got was frequently based on how fast your weapon was, and specializing in darts allowed you to take a absolutely ridiculous number of attacks in a single turn to the point where even with the minuscule damage that the darts did they would easily outclass a fighter with say a bastard sword who was specifically trained to exactly the same level which not only gave the characters more versatility in that they could make a lot more attacks but also gave them a lot more power just raw power straight up front.
0: So in uh, 3.0 and 3.5 the uh, big reason why power gaming was was so prevalent was they had no real restrictions on what classes you could take and when. You also had the addition of feats, which could specialize your character in completely insane ways sometimes, in very flavorful ways other times, but most of the time it was just gaining more power in a particular aspect.
1: Some good examples of this, the uh, cleave feat would allow you to take an extra attack whenever you felled an enemy. You know, if you took a down an enemy and they hit zero hit points, then you were allowed to take an extra attack.
0: This way your 5th level fighter could attack a goblin, knock him out, attack his ally who also charged up to you, knock him out, and then take a big swipe at the orc who for some reason is in this group. I think I'm playing some sort of Warhammer D&D hybrid at this point.
1: <laughs> that that sounds pretty likely given that collection of enemies, but um, it's also worth noting that once you got higher level, there was the supreme cleave feet, which you could get, which would allow you to cleave off a cleave off a cleave off a cleave. Now, the bag of rats problem was a common exploit of this, where a character would carry around, say, a bag of rats. They'd throw the rats on the ground, they'd attack a rat, get to cleave off of that, hit an enemy. If they felled that enemy, they could then attack another rat, getting another guaranteed cleave off of that, and so on, and so on, and so on. And if the rats scattered, they could take an attack of opportunity as the rats ran away, and cleave off of that, and so on and so on. So you would get this cleave trap where they would get basically an infinite number of attacks for very little effort.
0: Yeah, you you'd run up to the boss wielding your long sword. You drop your uh, you drop your bag of rats. Take one attack, and fifty eight t- attacks later, the boss is dead. That was the uh, the great cleave issue there. It also applied with whirlwind. Was the, one of the big uh, big issues with it. You whirlwind, you get one attack against every enemy and then you cleave
1: off of all the rats. So the whirlwind cleave problem was perhaps the supreme example of this, where you would use the whirlwind attack to attack each and every rat, and then cleave off of all of that, which is... Clearly ridiculous. I mean, from a from a realistic perspective, from a gamist perspective, even it's clearly not what the intention of those things were.
0: When we first uh, started hanging out, we we did have the uh, argument of monk being more powerful or less powerful, and that that actually goes into a, a bit of the minutiae of role playing. You uh, you specifically had said that the monk couldn't be disarmed, which was a big deal, and it it still is. The monk can just punch someone in the face no matter what. It doesn't even have to be a punch. It can be a kick. It can be, I don't know, a very powerful pelvic thrust.
1: I imagine if the monk has any limb free, then rules as written, he would get to make an attack. That's all there was to it. His unarmed attack was not a punch, not a kick. It was just a strike. I guess one could even argue that he could headbutt. So the monk was never truly disarmed. And to me, that was a pretty large oversight in the rules.
0: Speaking of uh, powerful things, empower gaming. Wizards and any spellcaster in general often had the biggest power creep problems. We're talking your magic missiles, your fireballs, the benchmark for damage at each particular level. At 5th level, if you couldn't do more damage than the wizard, why are you not playing a wizard? Yeah. What was that, five uh, five, six-sided dice worth of damage, 5d6 to each creature in 30-foot radius, 20-foot radius?
1: At 5th level, you're doing 5d6 damage to every creature in a 30-foot radius if you're using the iconic fireball spell. There were other options that could even potentially do more damage than that or do their damage differently in ways that could be maximized even beyond that fireball limit.
0: Yeah, and and in Dungeons & Dragons, uh, if we wanted to power game, you would use dump stats. How, how many characters did you see who had the lowest stat that they had was in Charisma. Or sometimes if it was a, a bard or a fighter, their lowest stat was in Wisdom.
1: They're not they're not worried about that low Wisdom stat because it's mostly used for perception at that point, and you only really need one person in the party who sees everything. D&D evolved a lot. A good example was the 3.5 edition, which tried to put lockdown on some of this, but really didn't do anything for the Cleave Whirlwind attack issue. Um, that didn't really get fixed until Pathfinder, where cleave was turned into a specific attack, like you chose to cleave on your attack to guarantee that if the enemy was felled, you would get the next attack, and you couldn't pair that with other attack forms. You couldn't say, I'm doing a whirlwind attack of cleaves. No, it doesn't work that way anymore. And that did a lot to correct that problem. Another another one that comes up a lot is the spiked chain, again in D&D, The spiked chain was a weapon that among its most important qualities was that it threatened at both adjacent and one square away. Now, most weapons with reach only threatened at one square away. If you had a glaive or a halberd or something like that, it really wasn't any good for close combat. But the spiked chain broke that rule and was effective at every range that it could possibly strike
0: from. You uh, mentioned Pathfinder there. In Pathfinder, they did a lot about destroying the high levels of power by just putting a complete clamp on that. They dealt with the feats that let you get absurd amounts of damage and just stop them. They, they went, no, you get this much damage, not a variable amount. But what they ended up doing is they made it so that way characters were more powerful if they were broader. You, had, uh, you have a number of characters who can just do everything. I'm talking, of course, about the summoner, the person who can summon a creature to do anything they need. At higher levels, oh, I'll summon this creature who's a bard. I'll summon this creature who is a cleric. I'll summon this creature who's an all-right fighter.
1: Now my brother played a summoner in my most recent campaign and this was almost a problem and I can go into why it didn't end up being a problem a little later. But with the summoner, the Eidolon, which is its summoned creature that continues to summon under all circumstances, the Eidolon actually had an ability called the Evolution Surge. It was a spell he could cast on it which would allow it to change its build. And when it changed its build like this, it could do basically anything. On one occasion, for instance, there was a area they wanted to infiltrate through a waterway, and it was trivially easy for him to give his idol on water breathing and allow it to swim through this otherwise far, far too long waterway that would have required like a potion of water breathing or them to prepare a new spell for it. But because the evolution surge allows him to put basically anything on the Eidolon, it completely circumvented the challenge.
0: I recently found a story, once again, this is entirely anecdotal, I can't uh, back this up with actual playtest and what uh, and whatnot, but there was a story of someone on the forums, on the Paizo forums, talking about how he and his brother were playing a, an entire adventure path alone. One was the DM, one was the player the player played a Master Summoner. The Master Summoner is a version of the Summoner that can just keep casting summon monster spells that are more powerful than the normal summon monster spells.
1: All but indefinitely.
0: All all but indefinitely. And he would solo an entire adventure path. That's uh, six adventures all linked together that generally take you from level 1 up to level 15 through 20, depending on the uh, specifics of that adventure path. And... The idea that there is a character, even in one of the most recent editions of a Dungeons & Dragons offshoot, that is able to solo something that a a group of four is supposed to take on, is the reason why uh, we're talking about this uh, sort of power gaming thing. Who would want to play with that person in their party? If I had, let's say, a, a party of four, and one of them played this powerful of a master summoner, the rest of the people would have to either build broken characters as well or become back seats to this one solo player.
1: Yeah, they'd have to just come to terms with the fact that their characters were completely superfluous to the campaign. I mean, at that point, he can handle every challenge on his own. The additional players are just extra, extra meatbags to carry around.
0: All right, so we've talked about Dungeons & Dragons and the mechanical aspects of it. I I know that a lot of people could go, oh, well, just play a narrative game. You won't get power gaming. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's, that's not necessarily a solution. In narrative games, a good example is the World of Darkness. New World of Darkness or Old World of Darkness, but uh, we're going to focus on the New World of Darkness.
0: Well, it's the one that we've played for almost forever, as long as we've known each other at the very least. We've played World of Darkness together as long as we've played Dungeons & Dragons together. Yeah, so uh,
1: in the New World of Darkness, for example, uh, there there are combat rules which are endemic in all games. They're just something that every game has has to cover, because physical confrontations are one of the most obvious sources of drama. And a World of Darkness is a very narrative system where it's not really intended to be a combat engine the way that, you know, for example, D&D, Pathfinder, all of those are.
0: And, uh, Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition, very specifically, is a combat engine with role-playing bits tacked onto it, which I enjoyed playing 4th Edition Dun- Dungeons and & Dragons.
1: And I did not...
0: But uh, World of Darkness is a narrative-style game. So you have uh, your bevy of stats. You have your physical stats, your mental stats, and your social stats. And so you'd spread out your, your powers and uh, uh, attributes among these. And um, so at any point in time, you could go, Oh, I have a combat powerhouse brute. And the, and the storyteller could go, All right, he's being charmed by this small, innocent little girl. She's saying, Oh, please, help me. My mommy is hurt. And your big brute will go, Oh. Yeah, I'll help you.
1: Yeah, the the whole thing is that there's supposed to be a balance between the mental, the physical, and the social attributes in the uh, New World of Darkness. And to some degree, it does do that effectively, but you still end up with players who use their one-trick pony-type abilities, and you'll see, for instance, uh, Nosferatu, who max themselves out with Obfuscate and treat it with the hammer-nail problem, where when you've got a hammer, everything looks like nails.
0: In almost every game of World of Darkness that I've played, uh, there's been at least one character who has the five dots in strength. Five dots is the maximum normal that any character could have. So having five dots in strength is the equivalent of an Olympic-level bodybuilder. Right. and uh, Or there's
1: also the character who has uh, five dots in dexterity and takes weapon finesse and then takes five dots in weaponry and a weapon focus in rapiers, and maybe I played that character.
0: Yeah, maybe you played that character, and maybe that character became the central focus of that campaign.
1: Yeah, but he became that for completely narrative purposes, which I just want to point out that power gaming in and of itself, making a character who has sort of a min-max build, does not all by itself break a game. At the end of the day, it is what you do with the character that matters. There have been other players who have played characters who were built around a single aspect and didn't really do anything else, didn't have any sort of narrative to them or background.
0: They, they didn't play their faults at all. They have no mental stats, no social stats, but don't play their character as not having mental abilities, not having social abilities. They just play their character as just having this one aspect. Having the, once again, the, the brawler type, the eye punch well, what, what do you do when when you drink? I punch. Punching.
1: Punching, Punching. is the solution to everything. Yeah, that's the...
0: Oh, yeah. speaking of punch. Hmm. <laughs>
1: <sighs> but uh, one thing that I felt that I did very well, and I, I think and I hope that everyone I played with will agree with this is that I did play my character's faults. I did play his weaknesses. He was not too bright. Um, he fancied himself as being kind of a genius, but he didn't really exhibit that in any meaningful way. He also had a kind of a turbulent relationship with his religious views, and that was reflected in a lot of his social dealings.
0: He also, really, uh, really the character interactions in that game were uh, wonderful his uh, what is it his uh his uh his childer they they had a uh, a very turbulent relationship there and oftentimes entire sessions would be uh, built on the clashing of their personalities and their wants and wills versus uh, what's going on in the world around them and that was part of what made uh, that narrative game so good you did mention that uh, power gaming and role-playing are two different things oftentimes they're viewed as being the uh, just on one line you're you're a power gamer or you're a role player
1: opposite sides of a spectrum like oh you're you're a role player therefore you have no idea how to build characters or on the other on the flip side wow your character build is really nice i guess we're not going to get any role playing done in this game
0: and that's really not the case i've uh, i've seen many people who have played powerful powerful characters who do nothing but play their faults to the point where their powerful ability is not even pre- uh, present at all. And I've also seen people on the complete other end roleplay so so well that they've become the central focus of a game, even though their character is lackluster at best.
1: Yeah, mediocre. Just, you know, mediocre.
0: It, it is very important to to realize that those are different things. One common example
1: um, also of kind of munchkinning to the extreme is the peasant railgun problem in oh, D&D. God. <laughs> it... The great thing is that if you actually do rules as written... Oh, let me just go into it, okay? So the peasant railgun was, in Dungeons & Dragons, you're allowed to ready an action, which will trigger when a specified trigger occurs. So you can, for example, ready an action to hand an object to someone else. And you could ready an action to take that object and hand it to the next person. Now, if you line up a large number of peasants, or just characters with low class levels, or...
0: Let's say, uh, with a quick bit of math... Uh, About 100 or so uh, different peasants, each which you'd hire for about a copper piece. 100 copper pieces is one gold piece? One gold piece,
1: yeah. So you hire 100 peasants, who all stand in a line, each occupying a five-foot square. The first peasant is handed a spear. That peasant and every other peasant has readied an action to hand the spear to the next peasant. So, in the course of six seconds, which is a single round, this spear is going to go from the first peasant all the way to the 100th peasant. When it reaches the 100th peasant, the spear is, by definition, traveling at an enormous rate. Enough to...
0: That ends up being about 83 feet per second... We can, of course, uh, go on this uh, even further... One gold piece is nothing. A first level character has many gold pieces. Let's go with the fifth level character or someone uh, decently high and has a thousand peasants. Five thousand peasants. It it doesn't matter. Enough to mathematically break the system. Yeah, eventually we
1: hit a speed that is just absolutely phenomenally colossal and the last peasant in line readies his action to throw this spear with all of his might. The spear is traveling at a ridiculous rate of speed. It's only fair that the DM counted as a railgun being fired with a tremendous blast to destroy whatever is in its path.
0: You, you line all these uh, peasants up at the mouth of a cave. One adventurer at the very end hands the spear off. One at the uh, v- adventurer at the very front has his ready to action to call to the dragon inside. The challenge rating 20 dragon with 15 bajillion hit points. It doesn't really matter.
1: Bajillion is a real number. Look it up.
0: Actual number there. And the, the peasant railgun goes off. Voom. Spear goes through at some number of times the rate of sound. Sometimes I've seen people uh, do the math to get it up to the speed of light, and it just kills the dragon.
1: Except, rules as written,
0: there's no reason to assume that
1: that spear is moving any faster than any normal spear. So you have the peasant railgun, you take the spear, you move it all the way to the other end, and the adventurer throws it for 1d6 plus his strength bonus damage. That is rules as written. And it's funny to watch the munchkinning player argue that that's not fair that <laughs> that he came up with this amazing plan to move this spirit at a tremendous speed by exploiting a weird anomaly in the rules and now he's upset that weird anomaly doesn't carry over other rules
0: I'm fairly certain a classic example of a munchkin actually comes from the player who knows how to make gunpowder and my character gets saltpeter my character gets blah blah, blah. I, I don't even really know what goes into gunpowder I've never had to look it up I mostly think bird for shit. legal bird shit's one of the ingredients, uh, I'm but... fairly certain uh, bird shit, uh, or orkish Grog is in most uh, most sure real gunpowder. Um, real world gunpowder. Uh, orcs, of course, were originally in Scotland before they were driven out by the Scots. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly certain that that's just history right there. You get the player who knows how to make gunpowder, and so his character can accidentally make gunpowder. Well, why would he do this?
1: Yeah, I mean, where where is he going to get the knowledge? Where is he going to come to the conclusion that mixing all these things together makes sense? I mean, I suppose if he had alchemy as a skill, one could argue that, yeah, he's, he's into that sort of thing. He's going to mix some stuff up. But at the end of the day, the DM is fully within his rights to say, your character just would not do that. It doesn't make any sense. One example of power gaming from a classic war game, uh, Warhammer 40k, uh, which if you're not familiar with it, is basically space marines blasting orcs in the 40th 41st... 40, 41st Millennium? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how millennia work. Anyway, the example was... Uh, it's sometimes called the Wheeler versus Shooter example. You see, Wheeler had an army that was designed to keep all of his units in reserve, which means when you deploy your army at the beginning of the game, he got to hold on to all of his units and wait until his opponent had deployed everything, and then he could deploy his units at wherever the weakest point in his opponent's army were. Well, Wheeler went up against a player who was Shooter, in this example, Shooter ran an army with a number of scouts. Now, normally scouts are used to position yourself for better flanking maneuvers, things like that. They're useful, but they're really not all that amazingly
0: powerful. They're they're oftentimes very, very underpowered. And in in this example, at least the uh, the way that the story is often told, Shooter's playing a very run-of-the-mill style army list, whereas uh, Wheeler had an overpowered, broken, rules-abusing army.
1: Right. (laughs) The shooter managed to abuse the rules back. See what he could do with these scout units is he could deploy them anywhere. So he deployed each scout unit along the back of his opponent's board. So where the enemy would have to deploy his uh, reserve units from was now covered entirely with scouts. And because the rules say you can't deploy a unit within five centimeters of another unit, or one inch if you're in America, (laughs) which is slightly different, actually, I just want to point out, but the units were deployed in such a way that Wheeler could not deploy his army at all. He, he just did not get to do anything. And after some deliberation, the calling of a judge, a lot of uh, shit-eating grins and angry tantrums, it was determined that Shooter's interpretation of the rules was completely right. So that brings us to solutions to power gaming. And obviously, this shows us the first solution
0: is just ignore the power gamer. Yeah. It it often is just go with the flow. Do what you're doing, and the power gamer will often overextend himself and crumple under the uh, weight of his own rules abuse. When you abuse the rules, you are
1: opening up other loopholes, and you might even inspire one of your fellow players to help you
0: out in a very helpful way. Helpful. Another fun story of ignoring a power gamer. This I, At this point, I should point out that Cheating is a form of power gaming, but it's so far away from actual gaming that everyone just assumes that cheating is wrong. Cheating is wrong. Cheating is wrong. Cheating is wrong. We really
1: can't stress enough that cheating
0: is not playing the game. I once ran a uh, game of World of Darkness. I had a player who had a pool of three dice. Now, each die has a chance, uh, a one in three chance of succeeding. It also has a chance of exploding, which is roll another die, has a one in three chance of succeeding.
1: Effectively, the math. Makes each die worth 33% of a success, but I'm going to let you finish.
0: So, this player, she picked up three dice and rolled them. Picked up uh, one of those dice and rolled it again, uh, implying an explode. And looked up at me and said, I have an exceptional success. Exceptional success
1: is five successes.
0: Now, I'm not great at math. I really am not. But three plus one does not equal five. Not, last I checked. It's like 4.21, right?
1: Um, Within a certain tolerance, yes.
0: All right. So the proper solution, at least in my eyes, was to ignore this player's action. Yes, you have gotten exceptional success. Good for you. Your character goes on and does this thing. Everyone else doing stuff? All right. And I just ignored the player up to the point where everyone else had caught up. Yes, you got ahead. Good for you. It didn't actually get you any advantage.
1: That's a rather extreme example. In most cases, cheating is as simple as rolling a three and saying it's a five or rolling a, or rolling a natural one and saying it's a two so you don't get that epic
0: failure. Then, of course, there's other ways of dealing with power gamers. Let's say everyone in your party is a power gamer. I love playing with power gamers. Some of my best friends are power gamers. Your brother is a power gamer.
1: He is a power gamer. And one of the features of power gamers that's really nice is they know the rules very well.
0: Yes. So if if everyone in the party is is rolling up a power overpowered character, you can just up the power of the campaign. Yes, it says that they're fighting three goblins here. Well, three goblins is no challenge for this group. So unless they've uh, seen the module, they shouldn't know. So I've often deployed twice the number, sometimes even more than twice the number. Three goblins, no. I heard there's ten goblins here. Suddenly, this is a dangerous encounter for this overpowered group. Ten goblins. One of them is a shaman. There's a goblin bard
1: there just playing away on a skull or something. I don't know, just tippy-tapping on it.
0: And then one of them summons the Tarrasque. Uh That might be a little overpowered, but uh, sometimes you just have to up the power level just enough. Just, just to that sweet spot. But that's... That's the point,
1: is that you want to achieve a sort of sweet spot in the challenge. And sometimes that's very doable with a group of power gamers. As long as they aren't doing something that, for instance, exploits an action economy to the point where no one gets to do anything.
0: That's another rant right there. Action <laughs> economies in games is going to take up way more time than we have right now.
1: Yeah, okay, that's that's a rant. and We will rant on it. We will get there.
0: But you mentioned that power gamers are often people that know the rules better than even you as the DM might. I know that there have been numerous times where I'm busy running an encounter and I forget, oh right, this monster can't act twice right now. Or... Oh, right, this monster just took a big bonus to his armor class, so no, that doesn't hit. The power gamers will often keep this in mind and remind you. And there are many times that the power gamer will help a non-power gamer in the party. One of my uh, favorite players of all time didn't know the rules at all. He just loved playing Barbarian. Okay, I want to hit stuff. Let's go ahead and hit stuff. And there would be players that would look over his character and go, Okay, roll this die, add... What's that, eight? Yeah, roll this die, add eight, tell him what you got. And he'd go with it. Okay, cool. I got a 28. We'd all look at him and wonder why we even bothered.
1: (laughs) Sometimes it doesn't pay to DM. But, uh... (laughs) Sometimes the power gamer will even be like that kid in school who uh, points out that the teacher forgot all about the big test that they were going to issue today. Good times, good times. Very helpful.
0: But what do you do if you have an overpowered character played by someone who doesn't want to play the game with everyone else, who just wants to win? What do you do in the situations where you can't just ignore them or up the power level?
1: I'll tell you what you do. You put on your big boy pants and you talk to them about it. You explain to them why they're making the game unfun for other players and you seek a solution because you're a grown
0: up. Sometimes the player will understand, oh, I suppose putting the enemy to sleep every single round of combat isn't fun. They'll realize that what they originally had envisioned is no longer what they're doing. They're just ruining the game and the fun for everyone else. And they'll rebuild their character. Sometimes they'll realize, oh, maybe I shouldn't be tripping this enemy every single round, even though it's the best play. Maybe I could actually just hit them for damage. Sometimes they'll, I don't know, stop drinking in the middle of the game, and actually play the freaking game as best they can.
1: There is, of course, the uh, nuclear option, which is to enforce what we call the ban hammer. That is to say, find the ability that is broken, find the ability that is making the game unfun, and just ban it.
0: There was a while that we played an arena battle version of Dungeons & Dragons. We'd go up to a a local coffee shop, sit down, all of us had the most powerful characters that we could possibly roll up at at a particular level, and just go to town in a combat. Well, afterwards, we'd realize, oh, having higher-level characters craft this item for this lower-level character is a bit broken.
1: Yeah, the, the the ultimate example of that would probably be I actually stepped aside and built a character whose sole existence was around crafting items for my character. Using the Ur Priest, was it? I think it was the Ur Priest class, I was able to make a ninth level character who could craft ninth level spell-based items. And this resulted in an enormous reduction in the cost of the item. Just absolutely over the top, it would be... Let's see, that would be half the cost of a normal ninth level item. And usually all of the effect...
0: And so that character, even though it was a fun thing to build for an arena battle, was never allowed in any actual campaigns. That's that's just silly.
1: Yeah, it's just over the top and is exploiting a gap in the rules. Another, another good example of this is we, we ended up banning... uh, items that were higher level than the characters for instance if we were doing a 10th level arena battle then the limit was 10th level items this kept us from doing the thing where we would get an item that could cast 9th level spells that would basically just end the entire arena battle in a single round
0: you'd have your 10th level character open up a scroll of um blasphemy blasphemy
1: blasphemy all right
0: save or die
1: Save and die, actually. So it was just the end of the game, no save. And we locked that down pretty early on.
0: So we talked about the banhammer, the nuclear option. What's beyond the nuclear option? You have a player, a new player to your group who comes in and plays an overpowered character. You step aside, talk with them, tell them that character's overpowered. So they build another overpowered character. You mention again, okay, that's overpowered as well. So they build another one and another one and another one. They start making fun of everyone else's inability to make powerful characters. He views it as the right way to play the game. What do you do in that circumstance?
1: If a player is completely recalcitrant about this sort of thing, and sometimes they are, sometimes the best decision is
0: to ask them politely to leave. I know that I have had a number of players that I've gone up to for one reason or another and asked them not to return to my table. Sometimes they just didn't gel with the group. Sometimes they make one or two off-color jokes, which I would laugh at, but would openly offend some of the other players. Sometimes they would be a power gamer to the point where it would make other people not have fun. I've had one or two players that I've had to ask to not come back just for that reason.
1: And ultimately, that's what games are about. Having fun. Enjoying an experience with other people. If you are actively hostile to that process, you can't really be a member of a gaming group.
0: No, you you, you really can't. Once again, if everyone in the group is power gaming, everyone's having fun. Sometimes you as the DM aren't having fun. That's why you up the power. Sometimes you just ignore the person who's playing a character way over the power level because they're having fun and it doesn't actually impact anyone else's fun.
1: Sometimes you drop the banhammer on some things. Again, the nuclear option, not something that you want to be doing on a regular basis. People build their games. The publishers build their games around certain assumptions and changing any of those assumptions might change how the game plays. And sometimes...
0: Sometimes you you just have to get rid of the player you really do you just and it, no, no one likes it but it has to be done so we've talked about power gaming now for uh, quite a while uh, let's have some final thoughts once again why does power gaming exist
1: honestly because it's fun because sometimes it's fun to be the biggest baddest awesomest guy there
0: is who doesn't want to be awesome a- as your wife said who doesn't want to be awesome
1: yeah gaming is a escape from our sometimes dull day-to-day lives and in that escape, a lot of times we want to be amazing. We play games to enjoy being someone else or something else.
0: Yes. Sometimes you just want to be the most powerful person in the party. Sometimes you want to be the most powerful badass that ever existed.
1: Ultimately, power gaming is not good or evil in and of itself. It is how you use it. And that's that's basically everything. Everything is in how you use it. In power gaming... Even munchkinning can at times be an amusing, amusing side project, like with our arena battles. They were all about rules as written, playing the game to the hilt, doing everything you can possibly do to screw up the other players. And that's why we had rolling ban lists and stuff for that, because eventually you'd find strategies that were successful under all circumstances, and something needed to be done about that.
0: So that's it for this episode of Save vs. Rant. Next time, I believe that we'll be tackling bookkeeping in gaming and how overwhelming that can be sometimes.
1: Plato once said, The measure of a man is what he does with power. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com
0: or on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.